0: Well, we're up to Joshua chapter 4, and we'll read verses 10 through 15. Hear God's Word. So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Father, I thank you for your word. It is our glory to study it and to worship you through it and to conform our lives to, uh, to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your promise that your spirit uh, gives to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And uh, so with Augustine, we, we rejoice that what you command, you enable. And so would you enable us, Father, to live out your scriptures more and more faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw that um, memorials are something that is a very important part of the Christian life. Those who don't know their history can be very easily manipulated by tyrants, and we have been definitely seeing that happening Uh, in America. uh, Tyrants love to rewrite history. They love to replace historical monuments with their own monuments and uh, that is not by accident. We saw that as very on purpose. It's the same reason that the uh, modern critical theory movement has been defacing monuments and uh, trying to uh, change um, uh, laws related to uh, and in fact even erasing history books. Uh, Anything that reminds them, I think, of uh, absolutes, authority, limits to civil authority, biblical basis for uh, liberty, any of those things that stand against the ideals of uh, Marxism, it's got to go. And I think they have been very, very successful in replacing good history with revisionist history. And um, they have been successful in injecting um, relativism in virtually every subject, including mathematics. And so we saw that remembering the past helps us to be well grounded in the present and to have motivation for the future. Now today uh, we're just going to slice off a small slice of bread from the bread of life and uh, look at verses 10 through 14. And even though these verses do give some additional information with regard to memorials, I think we've said plenty on that subject. And I want to focus on a central theme of this little pericope, and that is Faithfulness. It's a beautiful snapshot of what grace-generated faithfulness looks like. Verse 10, <clears throat> So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed over. And so this verse starts by saying that the priests fulfilled a job that they were commissioned to do. And the verse ends by saying that the people were faithful to do what uh, they uh, were supposed to be doing. And in between, we have some maxims of uh, what faithfulness uh, looks like. Now, we saw last week it would have taken courage for these priests to have stood their ground, as the literal rendering, to have stood their ground in the river, as this wall of water begins heaping up in the air, at least on the literal translation of the Hebrew, uh, to an estimated height of 120 feet. It was a a menacing wall, Uh, but it would have also taken some stamina to be standing still all day long with that heavy ark. it was completely overlaid with solid gold, okay? And so from dawn to dusk, they were standing there. You could do your own math. On any calculation, this would have been quite a feat to get that many people over during the daylight hours. Based on a much lower estimated population, one commentator said, someone figured that if 2,000 Israelites per minute crossed the Jordan, it would take eight hours for a million to cross the Jordan. This does not include the livestock, which would not be the fastest-moving bunch. Actually, they had to move faster for the population of Israel was more like 2 million or even more. Whatever the pace, the priests had to stand a long time, at least all day in the Jordan. This would require much patience in any situation, but so much the more with the idea of the waters coming back upon them causing great concern. Now, it's very easy to just slide over these words, not dig into them, but I believe uh, these priests stand as a model to us uh, leaders not just of the courage that would have been required there, but as this author suggests, that they were willing to embrace endurance and patience and inconvenience. There would have been a great deal of inconvenience standing there with that ark on their shoulders uh, all day long. And then the verse ends by saying that the people themselves were uh, were uh, obedient. As commanded in chapter 3, verse 4, they kept a respectful distance from the Ark of the Covenant. It had to be 2,000 feet separated, and so they would have been crossing about 1,000 yards downstream from uh, where the priests were standing. But I love the little detail that the Lord includes. It says that they hurried. Uh, The author I quoted suggested Two reasons, possible reasons, for why they hurried. Uh, One suggestion is, he said, seeing those sweating priests who are holding this ark, they're trying to get across, you know, to not inconvenience these people, don't want to stand there more than a day uh, holding that ark. And then the second reason is uh, that they would have needed to hurry to get over before uh, nightfall. On any calculation of the crossing, it would be very, very difficult to get that many along with their goods and their carts and their animals Uh, across the river. So they were diligent, they were speedy about their obedience, and it may be that they were also considerate of the comfort and the welfare of their leaders. But I want to especially focus on three additional phrases in that verse that highlight the faithfulness of these leaders and people. First it says, until everything was finished. This is a maxim for faithfulness. Uh, I'm going to give you several maxims in in later verses as well, but um, this phrase here shows that we should do our duty until everything is finished. When our kids did their chores, we were not satisfied with half-baked job. We wanted the job fully done and done well, you know, none of this half-baked stuff. How many tasks get started and never get finished? Usually that's because, I mean, there could be interruptions, but it's probably because we have poor time management or management of resources, and it's not a good thing because the Lord is not going to entrust more into our stewardship care if we have not been faithful with the things He's already entrusted into our care. So this is really a phrase that we need to adopt into, with rigor into our worldview, until everything was finished. It should be a maxim for our definition of faithfulness. The second maxim for faithfulness is following orders to the T. It says, until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people. Now, yes, the leaders were only to speak what God had told them to speak to the people. The only authority uh, we have is the authority of God's word, right? And that's the same for the state. And uh, as one Puritan worded it, the only voice that should be heard in the church is the voice of Christ speaking through the Scriptures. But here's the point. When Christ speaks, the people are to obey. They are to obey. This is not a popular concept at all nowadays to think that there is a chain of command from in the family, church, and state from God to the leaders to the people. I've got Facebook friends who argue against this all the time. They absolutely resist any idea that there is an authority structure or there is this chain of command, but they will have to ignore hundreds of Scriptures in order to be able to do so. And so this clause speaks of the faithfulness of the leaders to communicate God's Word to His people, and it also speaks of the faithfulness of followers to be willing to be discipled in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. When the Word of God is being preached from this pulpit you can't just say, well that's interesting. No, this is God's word that we must tremble at, that we must obey. When God's word is being shared by the elders in discipleship, one-on-one, or in mentoring, or in in counseling, God wants us to not treat that lightly. In fact, one of the other scriptures that talks about faithfulness, a definition of faithfulness, is a person who trembles at God's word. He takes it seriously, he follows orders to the T. The third maxim of faithfulness is not picking and choosing what commands of God we will obey. The third clause says according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Notice that word, all. Now, Just by way of illustration, just imagine a a father or a mother who has uh, given some instructions to the child on what needs to be done during uh, that day, needs to clean the bathroom, cook one of the meals during this day. They're going to take turns on cleaning the meals, needs to iron the clothing that has already been laundered, and needs to clean their uh, bedroom. And uh, the father explains... Or maybe it's the mother who explains, look, there's gonna be plenty of time to get all of these tasks done if you're organized. In fact, you're gonna have so much time left over, you're gonna have plenty for your own projects. But at the end of the day, the child takes the dad, you know, up to the bedroom, opens the bedroom door, and ta-da, look at this room. And sure enough, the room is beautiful. Uh, You see that there's a complete remodel that's taken place, and there's pictures on the wall, and you've got, you know, a shiny floor and gleaming furniture, but none of the other tasks has been done. So the parent is going to have to engage in some time management and how to juggle multiple tasks because life is full of economic decisions. Uh, For her to be making that decision to do so much work on that bedroom was also an economic decision to disobey the orders to do the other things. So that's just by way of illustration. In the same way, there are people in this church who feel very good about their Christianity because they are being faithful to the Lord on two, three, four other things in their lives but they consistently disobey the Lord on some fundamental orders that Gary and I have been harping on, such as family devotions and uh, your own personal devotions, and yet they feel good about their life. They don't confess this as sin. No. Following orders. Faithfulness means pressing more and more into that word, all. We can't be perfectionistic. I think this is one of the downfalls that many people have. We can't be perfectionistic, and we're not going to have a balance in life. We can't neglect important duties in order to be perfect on one duty. I guarantee you, you're never going to be perfect. Okay, there's always going to be something more that we could do better, but we can at least begin to enter into all of the tasks that God has given to us, and over time become better at each of those tasks. God honored Moses with the statement, He is faithful in all my house. Could God say the same thing about us? He's faithful, or she is faithful. 2 Kings 12, verse 15, praises the treasurers who counted and distributed money to workers, it says, because they dealt faithfully. In 2 Chronicles 19, 9, God commanded the pastors to minister, quote, faithfully and with a loyal heart. 2 Chronicles 31, verse 18, praises the little children in the worship service. It says this, For in their faithfulness they sanctified themselves in holiness. Now he's talking about really little children when he made that statement, which implies that little children can attend unto worship faithfully if the parents will train those children to do so. 2 uh, Chronicles 34, 12, praises craftsmen and carpenters and builders It says, because the men did the work faithfully. Could your boss say about you, oh yeah, he is a very faithful employee. He does his work faithfully. I I found almost 100 verses this past week calling us to faithfulness. Uh, Verses, for example, that call us to faithfulness in our romance when we are during the period of courtship and betrothal. Hosea 2, verse 20 and other verses, wives to faithfulness in managing their homes, 1 Timothy 3, 11. homes to have faithfulness in hospitality, 2 John 5, faithfulness to our employers, Matthew 25, 21, faithfulness in handling our finances, Luke 14, 10 and following, faithfulness in our conversations with each other, Proverbs 13, 17, 14, 15, etc., and in our rebukes to each other. Sometimes people are fearful of bringing rebukes. It's a command. When you see a brother or sister that is in sin, you can't just say, I'll leave that to a pastor to do. No, you are the one who has witnessed it. You are the one who needs to be faithful, uh, a faithful friend who brings a rebuke, Proverbs 27, 6. And so the point is, when you start looking through the upwards of 100 different passages that deal with faithfulness, we realize absolutely none of us is exempt even the littlest children, have to grow in this concept of what faithfulness uh, looks like. And we'll look at some other maxims uh, in a bit, but let's first of all look at the next point. How do we achieve this faithfulness? This is the next point. The previous generation of Jews were not faithful. Not at all. They rebelled against God's leaders. They disobeyed God's word. They grumbled, lusted. In many ways, they showed themselves to be an unfaithful generation. In fact, they are used over and over by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to say, because they were faithful here, God judged them in their communion. Because they were unfaithful here, he judged them when they partook of communion. They're an example of unfaithfulness. And Paul says, apart from God's grace, apart from looking to Jesus, none of us, none of us can be faithful. Well, that is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant in verse 11. Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the Ark of the Lord, that's Jehovah, and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. Now, symbolically, it was that ark that protected them and empowered them. The God who was enthroned on that ark was the God who kept those waters from coming one inch closer. The priests were his representative, and the ark pointed to Jesus in both his grace as well as in his law. And I want to repeat a little bit of what I said, what is it, two or three weeks ago about the symbolism of this ark, because I think it's important. Um, We saw that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where usually this ark was hidden, and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull on that ark to atone for his own sins, and the blood of a goat to atone for the sins of the people. And inside this ark was the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. And there was also in there uh, a bowl of manna, that miraculous manna, and Aaron's miraculous blossoming uh, rod. To the side of the ark, there was a little compartment that the, uh, they, they uh, put in uh, to a container of the first five books of the Bible. And so this Ark of the Covenant is a beautiful symbol of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, the wood represented the humanity of Jesus. The gold that covered the wood represented his deity. The throne represented his a sovereign rule. The uh, Ten Commandments represents the holiness of the kingdom and the law of that kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without law, uh, unlike what some people think. Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, Matthew five seventeen. So even though people say, Yeah, but the law, it brings terror. And Hebrews says we don't have terror. It's true. The law brought terror when there was no blood on Mount Sinai. You approach the law of God without grace, it, it's trouble. But those same Ten Commandments, when they were put inside the ark, under the blood of the sprink, uh, sprinkling of the blood, it symbolized the gospel. The gospel is not anti-law. Instead, what the gospel tells us is that we are secure in Christ in relationship to that law, and His grace enables us to live out that law. And uh, the rod, you know, symbolizes uh, the, the leadership of Christ. So you go through the symbolism of the ark, it represents everything, the entirety of Christ's provisions, and that is what enabled them to be faithful. Without God's faithfulness, we cannot be faithful. Uh, Philippians two eleven through 12 says, we can only work out what God has already worked in us. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that faithfulness grows from faith to faith. There's a growth process from glory to glory, from strength to strength. To quote William Booth again, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking. First faith, then works, then faith again, then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. Uh, You combine those two and you've got faithfulness. Now, tempting to be faithful without receiving God's grace is ministry in the flesh. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to be burned up. It will not last. We don't just get justified by faith. Habakkuk says that the already justified person shall continue to live by faith. And you look at the Greek of Paul's quote of that. He's talking in the future. He's going to continue living by this faith. Here's how Paul worded it in Galatians 3, 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he goes on to say how this already justified Abraham, continued to live by faith, and then he concludes, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So it is important to distinguish faith and faithfulness, but you cannot separate them. So... Um, Faithfulness flows from grace. We receive grace, and our Christian walk by faith. So um, uh, last week we saw that every single time that the ark moved, which would have included this time, the people were to say this from Numbers 10.35, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Okay, so we're just getting to the summary here. What it's basically saying is, is that we are called to faithfulness in battle. That's what the whole book of, uh, of Joshua is symbolizing. We're called to faithfulness in battle, but then this statement is affirming we can't do it without God's grace unless God fights on their behalf. So the ark was a reminder, faithfulness flows from grace. But the next point deals with an imbalance people sometimes have in trying to be faithful. They're trying to be so faithful at work that they neglect their family or they're so faithful in the pro-life ministry or working with the church and volunteering that they neglect their kids and they lose their kids. Uh, this was so sadly and vividly portrayed to me in one Asian country where pastor after pastor would confess to me that they just felt really guilty about their family, but they felt that God has called them to be away from their family. And uh, one, one pastor said, I, I feel guilty even being home one day out of 16. And I said, why? He said, well, Mark 10 commands us to forsake our wives, our husbands, our children, our lands for his sake in the gospel. And I said, well, let, let, let's sit down. Let's talk about Mark 10. This was a misunderstanding of Mark chapter 10. I said, yes, this does say that we are to leave our husband, our wife, our children, our houses, everything to God But then it goes on to say God gives exactly the same things we've given to him back to us. Now they no longer belong to us. They belong to God. Now he's given them to us as a stewardship trust. So how do we handle God's property? How do we handle our wife that belongs to God, our children, our house? He commands us to spend time with them, to nurture them, to uh, please your wife, 1 Corinthians 7. And it's like the light's going on, ah. So, we need to be faithful with our family just like we need to be faithful in ministry. Yes, exactly. We cannot sacrifice the family by being faithful elsewhere. That's exactly the lesson that's being given in verses 12 through 13. Let me read those two verses and then explain. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now in Numbers 32, God had already allowed those two and a half tribes to settle on the east side of the Jordan. They had conquered their land. And he said, go ahead and build sheep pens for your sheep and places to protect your cattle and build cities to protect your wives and your children. They would need that protection. But he said, you must cross over and help uh, the rest of the tribes of Israel to conquer their land. And they agreed they would do that. And so here's the thing. When you compare the numbers, it is crystal clear from the census numbers of uh, Numbers 26 that these 40,000 men are only 29% of the 136,930 fighting men of those two and a half tribes. Okay, so what in the world is going on? Because verses 10 and 12 here say they obeyed Moses. They were not being unfaithful. They followed his his instructions to the T. And yet Moses made clear all of them are to go over and fight. Where are the others? What's going on? And it is my belief that the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh took shifts where two-thirds of the men would stay behind to protect the flocks and the women and the children in the cities. They would need protection. And then one-third would go over for some weeks to fight uh, with the rest of the, the tribes this was not disobedience this was faithfulness now keep in mind that the children and the women and the flocks of the other tribes followed behind the armies wherever they went. They camped out, and so those men were taking their responsibilities to their families quite seriously. In fact, um, I've got evidence that they took shifts as well with some people guarding the flocks in the rear uh, of the army to make sure that nobody came around and attacked them uh, while they were away. And so I believe that a, a certain percentage Uh, Was always involved in in this shift way uh, of um, ministering to the family. The point is, faithfulness to ministry does not sacrifice one's family. Now, there are some other lessons in here that are not in your notes. Uh, Verse 13 says they were prepared for war. Luke 14 says you don't go to war unless you've prepared for war. You don't build a tower unless you've got the resources to be able to finish that tower. Uh, In other words, God expects us to engage in due diligence in our callings. It is a maxim of faithfulness. These soldiers took the time to think through logistics, supplies, weapons, armor, training, communications, all of the other things that would be necessary to be prepared for war. Now, when we were in chapter 3, we did three sermons looking at all of the ramifications, what it means to live by faith, and this is reinforcing that. It's indicating that faith in the Lord is not contrary to the use of means. Indeed, faithfulness requires a diligent use of means. Too many people pit faith against responsibility. And I say, no, these men were prepared. They were also organized. It says in verse 12, they crossed over before the children of Israel. So the soldiers went ahead to guard the way, and the rest followed. Now, another aspect of their organization was that they went in their armies uh, organized by tribe, clan, and family. We saw that earlier. And so there was an organization that was there. We live in a generation that values spontaneity more than they do planning and order, but faithfulness reverses those two. And if there was one thing that Kathy's parents modeled to Kathy and me was uh, organization and faithfulness to the nth degree. Verse 13 also says, these men crossed over before the Lord, literally before the face of the Lord. So what happened is they were crossing over before the face of these priests who were bearing the Ark of the Covenant and doing so they were crossing before the throne of God. They went before the Lord in the sense that they went before his face and consistent with his orders. So here's the point. They're not just fighting for Joshua, they are fighting for the Lord. And we too must do our work before the Lord. Everything we do 24 7 needs to be done before the face of God, consistent with his word. Uh, actually Calvin coined the word Coram Deo, at least I think he did maybe somebody else did, but uh, that means uh, before the Lord, it was certainly a favorite phrase of his, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we must do all to the glory of God, verse 13 also says they crossed over before the Lord for battle these men had already conquered the land and settled their wives and their children and their flocks in that land and um, Yet they knew that their work was not finished until all the tribes had possessed their possessions. And in the same way, we must not grow lax simply because we've accumulated our desired possessions. You know, maybe we got uh, $5 million saved up and we're ready to retire. No, there's no retirement in the Christian walk. There cannot be retirement. It might be retirement from a job, but not retirement from serving the Lord, that's the point. Until the church of Jesus Christ inherits the world, until the Great Commission is finished, the church's work is not done. We must sacrifice for missions. We must sacrifice for the greater cause of the kingdom. Every enemy must be placed under the feet of King Jesus. His crown rights must be exalted over every square inch of planet Earth. That is the typological message of what the rest of the book of Joshua is going to be uh, about. And so... Uh, It's not just about what benefits our family, it's about the kingdom at large. Faithfulness to God has a broader vision than just my family. There's one more lesson on faithfulness in these verses, and it's uh, found in verse 14. Faithful leaders are exalted by God. They don't need to exalt themselves. Verse 14 says, on that day, The Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Now, we already saw in chapter 3, verse 7, that God said he was going to perform this miracle for a purpose, and one of those purposes was that they would be able to see, the people would be able to see, God was with Joshua just like he had been with uh, uh, Moses. But let's look at each phrase. It says, on that day. Okay, on that day shows God's timing. Faithfulness is content with God's timing. Joshua, we have already seen, had been a servant to Moses who himself was called a servant of the Lord. And Joshua served Moses faithfully for 40 years. So there is a sense in which he was a servant's servant and he had not been exalted. He had not been exalted. And in God's sovereign timing, that exaltation happened on this day those who seek exaltation lose it ezekiel 21:26 says exalt the humble and humble the exalted so faithfulness does not need to rush the results we leave the exaltation to god's timing second verse 14 says the lord exalted joshua it wasn't joshua who exalted joshua this was a sovereign work of god himself Faithfulness does not push one's own agenda or push one's own exaltation. Faithfulness focuses on faithfulness to God and leaves the results in his hands. So there's timing. There's the Lord's sovereignty. Third, Joshua was exalted in the sight of all Israel. It says they all recognized that Joshua was the leader that they needed. Okay? They, they didn't have leadership forced on them. Now, Daniel 2 shows the exact opposite attitude that the world tends to have with regard to being great. Nebuchadnezzar tried to force Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down and recognize his greatness, right? That's self-exaltation. That shows incredible insecurity. You might not think of Nebuchadnezzar as insecure, but it shows incredible insecurity. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. People eventually recognize who is faithful and who is not. Fourth, it says that they feared him as they feared Moses. Now, here's how some other translations translate it. They revered him. They reverenced him. They respected him. They magnified him. Uh, Honor and fear of rulers is an okay thing. Now, the rulers shouldn't demand it. Okay, Their faithfulness will automatically attract... Uh, respect, just like a magnet does, whereas insisting on respect ends up doing the exact opposite. Who doesn't respect a leader like William Wallace of Scotland? I mean, people just, they had a hard time not respecting him, even his enemies. His very faithfulness made people want to be faithful like him, wanted to stir him. He stirred their blood, motivated them to be faithful. Now, of course, Scripture does command those who desire to be faithful to respect and fear and honor those who rule over us. Actually, at the prayer breakfast this past Thursday, Jared Ridge gave a marvelous uh, talk, a devotional, on uh, honoring and respecting the elderly. And I sure wish we had recorded that. It needs to be distributed (laughs) um, uh, far and wide. Uh, it It really was wonderful. So we live in an age that kills the young and fails to uh, honor and uh, respect the aged. Scripture calls us to honor and respect the elderly, parents, husbands, officers in the church, masters, employers, civil officers. It's part of a picture of faithfulness. Now, uh, what do you do if a man is not respectable? Well, you can still respect the office. Proverbs 24 verse 21 says this, my son Fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Maybe that's a call to start defriending people on Facebook who are anarchists. Just say it. <laughs> Let me quote it again My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Fear the Lord and the king. I just find it fascinating. He links those two things together. We live in an age of revolutionaries who have no fear of rebelling against authority, but faithfulness makes us look at even authority in light of our walk with God. How we treat authorities reflects how we are treating God is basically what it's saying. Finally, because of Joshua's faithfulness, this elevation was permanent. They feared him, it says, all the days of his life. As men and women grow in their faithfulness, they will grow in obtaining the respect of others. May it be true of each one of us. May we be found to be faithful by God's grace. Amen. Father, we want to reflect your faithfulness more and more. We desire to have the kind of, we know we don't have the character of aseity, but by union with you, we can overflow just as you overflowed if we are full of you and help us to be so help us to drink so deeply of the waters of grace that we cannot help but overflow in rivers of living water flowing into the lives of others we want to be faithful so help us to taste ever more richly of your faithfulness and as we sing uh, this song uh, great is thy faithfulness may we desire as was uh, even stated earlier by by gary to be more like you. We love you, we bless you, uh, and we're so thankful for your patience with us that uh, even though we fail you so many times, you are faithful to pick us up and uh, you are not unfaithful when we are unfaithful. So bless us your people, Father, with more of your grace and a greater determination to be faithful, to have our blood stirred uh, to to want to be like Jesus Uh, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.